You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. If you are new with us, uh, we've been walking through uh, <clears throat> the entire Bible, uh, doing a series called Jesus on Every Page, because we believe Jesus is on every page uh, in some way, shape, or form. And so if you do have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 22. We'll spend a couple more weeks in Genesis, and we're doing kind of high level, so we won't hit every book of the Bible or every verse, but kind of give us a, a feel of what the scriptures are about and what they're calling us too. And I know the Old Testament often gets a bad rap. Um, you know, here's this God who's angry and killing everyone. And, you know, where's the grace? And it seems like Jesus is so much more loving and all these things. But but hopefully as we kind of walk through this, we begin to see that there is the same God of the Old Testament as the same God of the New. And we see these moments of mercy and these moments of, of grace and these beautiful pictures of how God continues to pursue a people, even in their sin, even in their rebellion, even in their, their suffering. Um, and this morning, as we look at the, uh, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham, it's, it's another picture of that. Um, and so hopefully we'll feel that this morning, see that this morning, marvel at that uh, this morning. So I'm going to read um, Genesis 22. I'm going to read the first 19 uh, verses, and we'll, we'll start there. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. But Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and there arose and went toward Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And this is the word of God for us this morning. So as we've been walking uh, through Genesis, these promises have been made. And as we looked at last week, particularly God moves and speaks to his people through a covenant, this relationship that there are these certain things that need to happen, that I'm going to ensure that you, Abraham, your family are blessed, and through your family, you'll be a blessing to the nations. And we even looked at last week in Galatians chapter 3 that those that believe in Jesus Christ actually have those same promises, those same blessings that were give to, given to Abraham that thousands and thousands of years ago. Now, this is a strange story because if we know and remember the covenant that God makes with Abraham is one of the pivotal points of the covenant is that through your son, Isaac, and Ishmael, now Ishmael's gone, he's dead. (laughs) Isaac, through him, through his line, all the nations will be blessed. But now God is saying, but I need your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. That doesn't make any sense. What is God doing here? Like those are the, the promises built on the family line. If you take away his only son, if you remember Abraham and Sarah, right, they couldn't get pregnant. And finally at their ripe old age of 100, they have a child. And now God is saying, I'm going to take that as well. You can only imagine Abraham perhaps was confused. And even as us, as we read these stories, we're a little confused. I'm saying, okay, God, what's the plan here? What's the play here? Like, isn't the whole thing predicated on these families? But if you take away the families, there's no future of blessing to their family or all the families of the earth. And this story is probably one of the most picked apart, contested, confusing, uh, but also I think beautiful, most beautiful stories and pictures of the gospel we have in the Old Testament. I actually have in my office um, a Rembrandt uh, depiction of Abraham sacrificing um, Isaac. Um, it's not an original, by the way. Um, actually, you can go online and get it for $49.99, but, um, you know, probably made with child labor. But that's beyond the point. Um, but it's this beautiful picture of how do we wrestle with this, this God who's asking me to do this horrific thing, to give his only son. How many times did we even see that in the text already? His only son, the son you Love, my most precious son, that through his family, through his life, all the blessings were coming. Now you're saying, I need to take this away. And time and time again, as we've kind of walked through Genesis, you see God continually providing for them, continually showing them what this God, this Yahweh, this, this God that is revealed in the scriptures, this God that's revealed in, in history, what he's like. He's uh, continually re-engineering their understanding of what this God is like, and he's like no other God. Because you can go all the way back to even the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, God still pursues them and clothes them with clothing, shows them mercy. Even when Noah is wondering, okay, you, you called me to build this ark and to take these animals out and you're going to destroy the earth, and yet he makes this promise to, to even Noah and says, I'm not going to destroy the earth ever again. Even in Noah's confusion and rebellion, he's drunk in the tent, things aren't going well, he pursues him with mercy. Then a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Tower of Babel, even in their desire to build this tower to God, God intervenes and says, 
it's good that I make your languages multiple and diverse because I want to make sure you understand how I work and what I'm like. It's in God's mercy that he does this. And so this morning, it is no different. God is trying to reorient and re-engineer and give Abraham a picture of what this God is like and how he works and how he moves. And so let's look at that for a few moments here this morning um, of what we can learn from Abraham's story and the sacrifice of Isaac. Well, the first thing as we need to look at is the, there's a call here wrapped inside a test, <laughs> a call wrapped inside a test. And actually one of the helpful ways to read, uh, I think, narrative texts, especially in the Bible, especially texts like Genesis, is, is to see them as stories that have interlocking pieces. And so the, the writer here, most likely Moses, is trying to show us things and trying to give us little hints of what's going on. And so if you go back to Genesis 12, you remember the call of Abraham? In Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land I will show you and I will bless you and make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. A lot of commentators say chapter 12 and 22 are kind of these bookends of Abraham's life. He's, he calls them into this country, this unknown place. He says, take all your possessions, take your family, even your house, lay aside your, your gods of old and follow me and trust me and I'm going to bless you and bless all the nations through you. And now in a little twist on the calling, in chapter 22, he says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said to him, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. There's this theme of going. Okay, I want you to take your son and go three days journey. I need you to trust me in this. I know it doesn't make sense on, on paper, I know things are confusing, Abraham, but you, you see this little bookmark of a God who calls us into the unknown and says, trust, who says, trust, and he's doing it again with Abraham, but it's a call that's wrapped in a test because notice what the, the narrator says. He actually tells us right at the beginning. So this is where we get, we get kind of confused. It's like, we see the text, we read it. Abraham doesn't know this. <laughs> But the narrator says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, go take your son. The narrator gives us the hint, this thing is a test. This is, Isaac is not going to be slaughtered. This is a test for Abraham to see where his heart is, to see where his faith is. That, that, that many chapters ago, you called him out that you're going to be a blessing among blessings. You're going to bless the whole world. Part of, through your family, salvation is going to come. Are you going to trust me? That's what tests do, to see what's in our hearts. Those of us that have children, we know tests are not just pass fail, but to see where we're at, right? If you're a teacher, you understand that testing's not always a bad thing. It's to say, do I understand the ABCs? Do I understand the one, two, threes? Do I understand chemistry? Do I understand, you know, the ins and outs of, of literature or this book or whatever? It's to see where we're at. So God enacts this test to say, what is in Abraham's heart? Is he going to trust me even when I say, I need you to put your only son on the altar. It's a calling to go out. It's a calling to trust, but it's also a calling that's wrapped in, in, in a test. Ishmael's gone. There's no hope for Ishmael and his line. Isaac is the only one where these promises can come to fruition. 
Now, there's this level of, I think, also complexity when we look at this story because think about the social stability of the future if your son goes away. That in ancient cultures, the, the first son was everything. The first son was where all the wealth and all the provision and all the future was banked on this son. So we, we know in ancient cultures and even some cultures today is that all the possessions and provision are given to the first son. And so that when he is to take all of that wealth and all that possessions and land and all that thing, so, and then give it, disperse it to the other siblings. So everything is banked on this one Son, I think that's really hard for us to under, understand. I think in a very individualistic kind of Western culture, we're not used to the understanding of taking care of families and clans and, and, and communities, this idea that, that, that God would work through the, the father to give, uh, give provision to the son, and now the son is going to disperse that. Maybe we call that a will, but that doesn't always work out that way. But God is calling him, and God is testing him. God is obviously stripping Abraham down to nothing. Now, we see other tests in the scriptures. Now, this is where I think is important. If you want to read the Bible well, is not to look at every scenario and go, this is exactly how it works every time, because it doesn't. God tests and God calls in different ways. God saves in different ways. We see that in the Old and the New Testament, right? So we can't say it always happens like this. It always looks like this. But there is one particular place. If you go to Deuteronomy 8, which I think bears this out very clearly, a few books ahead in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God is leading his people into the promised land out of Egyptian slavery, and he wants to remind them through Moses of don't let your hearts get puffed up. Don't forget who's the one who's providing for you. Don't forget the one who's leading you out. And in Deuteronomy 8, it says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land and the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. Did you catch it? Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know the man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you know the journey through the wilderness could have taken taken a few weeks and said it took 40 years? Why? Because I want to humble you I want to strip everything away to make sure that you're trusting me and not even my promises, not even my provision, that the thing I want to give you is me, that am I going to be your ultimate pursuit, not even the things that I provide for you. Those things are great. Those are gifts of grace, but I'm going to strip everything down to ensure that your gaze and your faith and your life is rooted in me, not even the promises of what I give to you. Will I be enough for you? And then when you jump down a couple more verses, if I'm still in Deuteronomy 8, I love this. Verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. 
Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to his fathers in that day. I want to make sure that you don't puff yourself up to think that somehow you're doing this. It's all grace. That you being led through the wilderness, God providing food for you, God even providing wealth for you, don't think for a minute that you did this. Without me, there would be no wealth. There would be no opportunity. I'm the one who gives you the skills and the gifts to even create the wealth in the first place. I gave you the opportunity by living in a particular place at a particular time. How dare you go through the wilderness and go through suffering and thinking, look at me, I've done it. And if you're like me, that kind of stuff can creep in my heart all the time. Look what I've built. Look what I've made. <laughs> look how great I am. And yet God in his calling of Abraham, in his testing is to humble him. And these tests are never wasted. Like in the New Testament, James says, Consider it joy, my friends, when you face trials and tests of many times. Why? Because in this testing, it will create steadfastness in you, endurance in you. Don't we all want endurance, right? We don't like the test. We don't like the suffering. We don't like when things are falling apart. But the gift on the other side is that God doesn't waste it. As he strips all of those things away, he creates endurance. He creates, he, he creates this, this reality that we know that, that even though things aren't going well and things are falling apart, I've seen him be faithful time and time again. And I know many of us, if you're human and you're in this room, are going through something right now going, is God going to come through? It could be a small thing. It could be a big thing. But where faith comes is as you look back and go, I've seen God's hand time and time again. He is faithful. And he may answer that prayer in a way that I wasn't expecting, which usually happens, <laughs> right? I mean, you've heard my, my story of my friend, you know, John, who struck oil, um, literally, um, in South Dakota, and um, sent me a check to keep the church going early on when we were planting this church, when we were going, God, is this thing going to work? Is this thing going to go? And then you just have your friend who just has to strike oil and send you a check. It's really easy, right? But you've seen God's faithfulness, and we, we lean into that time and time again. And, and I think this call that we see with Abraham is a, really a microcosm of what salvation um, looks like, because in salvation, God is the one who calls. He's the one who initiates, and he's the one who kind of shows us, I mean, I think even when we realize our own sin, he shows us that the foundations of our life are brittle. Our, we, we are more weak than we, we realize. Is that when you look at, at salvation and, and you realize that, that really I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple of Jesus, not because of my good behavior, not because I grew up in the church, or, or not because I'm an American citizen, not because I'm, I'm religious, but the reason you and I are actually Christians is because God calls us to be Christians. He takes the first move, just like he did with his disciples, right? And in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, uh, it's a great text. Paul says it um, this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose. 
And then if you jump down to his prayer in, in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated us at the right hand in the heavenly places. It was the call of God, the initiation of God that he's the one who adopted us into his family. He had to make the first move. That we don't even know what we need most of the time. We can tell ourselves that we know what we need. Abraham had no idea. How could Abraham, this guy who's an outsider who worships other gods, and this God shows up and says, I'm going to send you to a place you don't know, into a, a place that's super uncomfortable, and there's going to be all kinds of weird gods, but I want you to trust me because through your family, somehow all the entire world will be blessed and salvation will come. Abraham was not looking for God, but God was looking for him. And he's continually pursuing him and calling him. And part of our own salvation and our own calling is we never arrive. That's the beauty of it, is we just continually meditate and reflect and sing and hear it again new so that we can go deeper into understanding what this calling is. We need to hear it. We need to sing it. We need to pray it. We need to talk about it. So we can understand, like Abraham, how good God is, that he's the one leading us to ultimately our promised land. Now, what's fascinating is when you read Genesis 22, um, they didn't have the New Testament at this point. Um, hopefully you understand that. Um, that came a lot later. But in Hebrews chapter 11, it begins to kind of interpret for us what was going on a little bit in these stories in the Old Testament, and in particular, the one about Abraham and, and Isaac and, and his life. In Hebrews 11, uh, verse uh, 8, it says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I think that says it really well. <laughs> By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Somehow the, old, the New Testament writer in Hebrews is interpreting back into the old to say somehow Abraham knew that the foundations that his life were built on were not sufficient. That somehow he knew deep in his bones that even though this God was calling me into this unknown place, I believe that this God, his foundation will be secure. That's how salvation works. It's when everything is stripped away, when we see our own sin and we see our own weakness, when everything's down on the ground, will you trust me to lead you where you need to go, even if you don't know what the next step is? Somehow he knew there was something better than his own life, his own family. What we know of Abraham, he was a pretty wealthy guy. He had it going for him. Okay, I don't really understand this, but it seems like this promise, this blessing is better than anything I could ever imagine. And I'm going to lead you where you need to go. I'm going to give you something better than you could ever imagine. And I think when God calls us, he always strips down those foundations. 
He brings us down to really see his love and his grace and his mercy. He shows us how everything in life is temporal and tertiary and brittle. That all the things we put our hopes and our dreams in are ultimately going away. Like everything. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true, right? Even our closest relationships won't last forever. The, those possessions that we just had to have will be in a landfill someday or the thrift store right up here in Warnell. The ways we shape and fashion our identity in our ministries, in our work, in our friends, in our hobbies, in our whatever, all of those things have an expiration date. And I know that for me, when I became a Christian, that was one of the eye-opening things was all the things that I was pursuing, I began to realize deep in my bones, well, one, that was a, just a sinner who was just living for herself and, you know, pursuing everything you can, could imagine, that all those things were brittle and temporary. And God had to open my eyes to see those things. But if I keep pursuing these things, I'm just going to have to keep pursuing them forever and ever and ever, and I'll never be satisfied, ever. But God moved in and he, he, he did something what I think C.S. Lewis says really well. Um, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I think all of us have had probably that moment at some point. That even the best vacation, three days later, it's like, where's the joy? <laughs> right? It's like reentry is hard. Right? You plan this vacation, you have this great family vacation, or you go with some, some friends and you go do this amazing things, and then like three days later, you're just like, that was a ripoff. I thought I'd have way more joy beyond this point. I just went to the UK for a week and a half, and it's like that, that juice is already starting to wane, right? We get that iPhone, and it's so shiny and so beautiful, and then we drop it on the cement. We get into marriage, we have children, and, and this is not that we can't have great marriages or, or be good parents, but we, we know that it becomes work after a while. The cuteness of babies, it wears off pretty fast when you're up till three in the morning going, I don't know how to work the bottle, the milk's not coming out, right? I mean, there's no one that tells you these things. They just show you on Instagram how perfect their family is, right? They don't show you the five minutes later when the kids were, you know, flaming out and screaming and beating each other up, right? <laughs> but that in God's mercy is what he does to us. He strips all of those things down so that we would ultimately trust in him and his provision. And that's what he's doing with Abraham and his son saying, I even need your firstborn. And so secondly, this will be shorter, but... Um, we need to dig further, a little bit further in this terrifying, what I call the terrifying test, is what do we do with this, this test? And again, I know this, this test of, of God coming to Abraham and saying, I want you to put your son on the altar, and I want you to give over your firstborn, which doesn't really make rational sense, because it seems like, again, if you take away the son, the whole plan kind of goes to pot. So what is God actually doing here? And people have poked at this and scrutinized this. I remember Kierkegaard uh, about 150 years ago wrote a book on this called Fear and Trembling. And he looked at this story and he said his fear, he would wake up sweating and he had this dream. And he said, well, what if a preacher gets up and preaches this story and then a man decides that he should just go murder his son? Like that was his fear. And I could get that, right? You just read that and go like, well, what if God asked me to murder 
my own son. Well, he wouldn't ask us to do that, actually, because <laughs> murder is not what God desires. And that's not what he's saying here. There's a couple details that I think help us understand what is going on here. Because if it was murder and Abraham was willing to do that, like God's going to be capricious in that and go like, yeah, of course, you should murder, right, Abraham? We're on the same team. No, there's something else going on here. And I think the, the details help us kind of see that out. Notice what he says here about this. He doesn't say murder, son. He says in verse 2, a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So Abraham rose early. In the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young man, stay here with my donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And it's interesting, that little detail. It's almost like, like Abraham kind of knew, like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it's going to work out because I'm going to come back and we'll be together again. I just have to go take care of some business right now. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand of fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? They know this is some kind of offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. It's just like an interesting posture of Abraham, like he's just very confident, like, okay, God, there's no hesitancy, there's no questions, there's no interaction. It's like, okay, let's go get the supplies. Somehow I know you're going to provide. I don't know how. I know this is a some kind of offering, but he'll, he'll provide, right? Somehow, some way. Like I've seen this play out before. He called me back in chapter 12 to leave my country, to leave my, my family. It seems like it's working out to this point. And he calmly goes. Now, there's also, I think, understanding the context of ancient culture, this actually does make sense. Because the gods in ancient culture would require the firstborn as an offering. That was very common. And, and in many pagan religions, child sacrifice was really normal. That's not what God's promoting here. But he would have been surrounded by these cultures. He probably came out of one of these cultures to say, this is pretty common. The God's asking me to give my firstborn on the altar is pretty normal. Now, I know that's hard for our modern ears to understand. But that's, and it's funny because the you know, Christian God or the God of the Bible gets a bad rap. But there were also many gods that sacrificed kids all the time. The God of <laughs> the Bible does not promote that. But you can imagine Abraham having this moment of like, okay, I, I've seen this before. Somehow it's going to work out. I don't know exactly how, but the God is asking me, this God is asking me to, to do this. He's still growing in his face, still understanding who this God is, understanding more of what he's like and what he's, he's up to. And so he moves, it seems, feels like very casually going, I know God will provide somehow, some way. And so in ancient cultures, giving up your firstborn was, was pretty obvious. And even in the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures, giving your first uh, grain, giving your first animal, right? In the sacrificial system, right? The tithes and the offerings are always about giving your first, giving your, your best, giving your most, most precious resource over to God to say, I trust you. It wouldn't be all that strange. And then you remember in the Passover story in Exodus, when 
God is judging Egypt for their barbaric ways, what was going to be sacrificed was the firstborn of the Egyptians unless a lamb was sacrificed, unless blood was spread over the doors. You remember that where Israel's people would be safe. They'd be known by, by the sacrifice that was made because all these other, other uh, countries and all these other uh, Egypt and, and these pagan nations would worship false gods and, and they weren't trusting in this God and judgment fell upon them unless there was a sacrifice that was made that a lamb sacrifice had to be made on their behalf to appease the gods. And so Abraham is being asked by God for his son to be that burnt offering. But there's something else going on in the middle of this test that's really, I think, beautiful, because again, I want to go back to Hebrews. Can we go back to Hebrews 11? Because I think it helps us understand a little more of what's going on here, what's really going on in this test. I mean, it seems barbaric. It seems like, okay, God, I, I'm a little confused. You, you want your son to be on the altar, but if the son goes, then the whole promise goes. Well, what is going on here? But notice with me in Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Abraham, by faith, is trusting God. He, in this test, he already knew the promises, the promise of blessing, the promise to bless this family and families of families that salvation would ultimately come through this line, ultimately through Christ. He's trusting in that. But notice what, he's, what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 18. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Somehow, some way, Abraham, at least according to the writer of Hebrews, understood that resurrection was possible. That, that somehow, even though he was to put Isaac on the altar, to be a burnt offering, that somehow these promises were made and somehow Isaac was not going to die. He knew it in his bones. He didn't have it all played out. He didn't have it all worked out. He didn't know what the next play was, but somehow he believed that resurrection was possible. Because I've seen this God do many, many miracles. Why couldn't he bring my son back to life to ensure that the promises would come true? And and what's, I think, important for this is even though this is like pre-sacrificial system, is that they understood that in a sacrifice, there was a debt that had to be paid. That that's what the animals were for. That's why they put these things on the altars. That the, the, the penalty of sin, the penalty of idolatry had to be paid for somehow. And somehow Abraham understood that deep in his bones that there was a, a debt that needed to be paid and I couldn't pay it. And even Isaac couldn't pay it, which you would probably understand later if he had a picture of Christ. But he knew deep in his bones that this makes no sense but somehow God is going to bring him back to life. Somehow, some way. But a debt has to be paid. And it seems like Abraham at this point in his life understood something of that because of the way, nature in which he is so calm. Hey, I'll be back. 
this is all going to work out. He even tells his own son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together in these moments of what is God up to? He's going to provide. The lamb will come. The debt will be paid. And it's not going to be you. (laughs) These are these moments where we have to kind of humbly just go like, we have to just see what's there and not read too much in and just go like, I don't know how he knew these things, but somehow he knew these things. That I think he had seen enough of this God of mercy, this God of miracle, this provider God who said, I want you to leave your country, leave your identity, leave your gods. And he keeps providing time and time again, even as Abraham keeps falling on his face. He is not pure in this. He is not righteous at every moment in his life. And yet God keeps showing up and keeps providing for him. And so Abraham in this moment, as he holds back, and there's also this little, and this is just kind of a little little um, side note, is that when you read in verse 9, it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So even in this scenario, even when he's about to slaughter his own son, he even hides the knife from his own son, and he only sees the fire and the wood. A little act of mercy. But then even that, he sees that, that okay, my, my son is not going to be sacrificed, but there's a ram here, and he puts the ram on the offering. There still needs to be a sacrifice made. But isn't it fascinating that even the scriptures themselves say that the blood of a ram or a goat is not sufficient? We just read that with the, the worship team uh, this morning as we were praying, kind of getting ready for the service, that even the psalmist in, in Psalm 50 says it this way, If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The ram is not sufficient. The blood of goats is not sufficient. God owns it all already. He says, I want your heart, I want a heart of thanksgiving. The whole point of these covenants, the whole point of this calling out and this this provision is so that you'll trust me. So you'll bank your whole life on me. It's not even about the sacrifices. It's about you and trusting me with thanksgiving and gratitude for who I am and what I've done. So if this sacrifice isn't even, and this is a pre-sacrificial system, there still needs to be another sacrifice, and you probably know where I'm going with this. That's the last part. It's the provision of the lamb. That Abraham is motivated knowing God will provide. He'll, and it's interesting in the Hebrew, it's to see, to see to it, this, this idea of the Lord will provide. It's to see, it's this little play on words that God will provide. We see that in verse 8. 
I don't know how he's going to, to, to pay this debt, but I know that he'll pay it somehow or some way. Every religion, every God of those times had some sense of sacrifice had to be made. But even Isaac can't pay for that sin. A bull can't pay for that sin. A ram can't pay for that sin. Now, this is where I just love this story with all my heart. (laughs) Is the little details that are so easy to miss. And they're right in front of us, giving us a little hint of what is going on here. What is going to happen in the future? How is this going to be paid for? How is this debt going to be paid? How is redemption going to come through this ragtag group of, of sojourners thousands of years ago? It makes no sense. But did you notice where God calls him to in verse 2? He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, we get a little detail in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. If you remember where Moriah is, it's where Solomon's going to build his temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you know the scriptures and you know history, well, what is this wink, wink, nod, nod about? That there's going to come a day in Jerusalem. Who's going to come to Jerusalem? Well, Jesus Christ is going to come to Jerusalem. There's going to be a different temple, and it's not going to be a temple made with, with hands. It's going to be a temple made with a body who's going to actually lay his life down, and he's going to be the one carrying wood on his back, but it's going to be a different kind of wood. It's going to be a cross, and the world's sin, and, and all the pain, and all the ugliness, and all the suffering, and all the evil of the world's going to be laid on his back. It's not going to be Isaac. It's not going to be a goat. But the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is going to show up in the land of Moriah, which is Jerusalem, and put the wood on his back. Showing us that even this sacrifice a long time ago was not sufficient. That this promise, you were right, Abraham, as much as you could understand, as much as you could see, there was a promise coming. There was a foundation that was better, a city that was going to come. There was a city of all cities that Jesus was going to make through his life and his death and his resurrection. That that Abraham, you couldn't make this right. Isaac, you couldn't make this right. You couldn't even pull off the promises if you want to. Somebody else had to intervene and make sure that the promises come true. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us and for the world. And this is also, church, how we change how we are changed from the inside out, how we are moved by stories like this, how we, we, we become people like Abraham who say, I don't know the future, I don't know what's around the bend, but I want to trust you and I want to love you and I want to give my all to you. Even if it requires stripping everything away, I welcome that, if that's what it was required. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say it in very similar ways in Romans 8, because you have to mention Romans 8 if it's a real sermon. Then in Romans 8, verse 32, he says, Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And later he goes through this litany of, we're more than conquerors, death or life or angels or rulers or heights or death or, or suffering or famine or persecution or negative. I mean, he kind of just names everything. And he says, if, if God is not stingy and giving his own son on the altar, you don't think he's going to give you everything? 
So the ways in which you and I, men and women, and if there's children in here, grow is to gaze on that, to reflect on that, to say, when I'm in my, this place of, I don't know if I can trust, I don't know if I can go any further, I don't know if God loves me, what do I do? I gaze on the one who did not spare his own son, that he proved in tangible history and reality and blood and guts that I love you. I'm not just spiritualizing this for you. I'm showing you intangible wounds that I love you. Like that's what's so amazing about God. He doesn't shout from heaven and go, I love you, get your act together. He says, I love you, I'm showing you because I did not spare my only son, my greatest gift, my prized possession. You think I'm gonna hold anything back from you? And if we're in Christ, all the blessings of Jesus are ours. That if we're in Christ, Christ's righteousness is ours. The one who passed the test. Abraham didn't ultimately pass the test. He had a moment of heroism, if you will. (laughs) But he's going to continue to fall on his face like every other person in the Bible. He's going to continue to fall on his face just like you and I. And the ways in which we grow, the ways in which we go deeper, the ways in which when we're in that Abrahamic moment of, God, help me trust you in this is to gaze on the one who didn't spare his only son to say, I love you that much. And what's so beautiful about the cross is in the cross, God is also the, the, he's also just and the justifier. He's a holy God who deals with our sin and deals with the evil. He's not brushing that under the rug and going, oh, it's okay, Jesus loves you, it doesn't really matter. No, he says, I have to be consistent with who I am and my character. I'm a holy God, I'm a loving God. Sin has to be dealt with, but the good news is you don't have to be crushed on the altar. Someone else is gonna be crushed on the altar so that you can come in and have new life. But he also simultaneously says, I'm the justifier. I give you new relationship. I bring you and I love you that much. He's doing those things simultaneously and we need a God like that. Because then you just have on one side a God who's just killing everybody and just hates sin and everyone's evil and never moves in with grace or love. Or you just have kind of a weak need God who's just loving but doesn't do anything with sin and evil and says, that's okay. Do I want a God like that? And I can guarantee you if Abraham at least didn't have some semblance of a God that can do both those things, he never would have went up that mountain. Never. If God isn't the just and the justifier, he wouldn't have done it. You said, you're asking me to murder? Like what? I mean, he could have just murdered his, his wife, right? I mean, that's not, but he knew something, there's something else here, something deeper here, that sacrifice had to be, a debt had to be paid. And yet what God does is says, Abraham, I love you just like I love my people thousands and thousands of years from now. I'm showing you that. And so church, if you're in that moment where fear has creeped in, feel like life is difficult, feels like you look around and you go, man, it feels like the world's falling apart. It's so healthy and right and good to meditate afresh on the God who doesn't spare his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to condemn it, but to save it and redeem it. So when you read the headlines and you scroll through Twitter and you you get all fearful and crazy, it's like, You don't think the God who was raised from the dead can deal with this? Abraham understood that. I don't know how you're going to come through in this. I don't have all the answers, but I know you will. Because you're a God who never breaks your promises.